You're listening to Blissful Prospecting, and today we're talking to Jay Bear about why you can't afford not to be memorable in sales. Being memorable is a really interesting topic to me because it's something that personally, especially in my younger life in middle school and high school, I, and I think this is a couple different things, but I was really raised in an environment that was really like humble behavior was really rewarded. And I had great parents, you know, it's, it's nothing around that. It's, it's more like being the person that is behind the scenes that does the work that doesn't need a lot of public recognition. And I don't think that that was necessarily good for me to be like that, but I hated attention, especially attention around some doing something really well, like being recognized for something. That's something that I always didn't like. And being memorable requires attention <laughs> from people, right? It requires you to take a risk. And I think that's what's always made me really uncomfortable about that until I got into sales. For some reason, something really clicked with me when I started selling. And if you're unfamiliar with my story, and I guess if you're listening to the podcast for the first time, uh, my name is Jason Bay. I'm the host of Blissful Prospecting. And my goal with this podcast is to help you think outside the script with your prospecting and help you implement proven tactics and strategies to meet with more of your clients and set more meetings. So my sales career really started selling house painting services. And there were certain things that I did to really stick out. But one of them was we went door to door. So I was in that community, probably the only contractor that was going door to door and actually introducing myself. I'd always send a thank you card to the person. I'd actually mail something to them. So there was this software that I used where I, you know, for a couple bucks, I could write a personalized message and it was kind of funny and cheeky and that sort of stuff, but I always sent thank you cards. So there's always things that I did to be memorable in sales, but I never really applied it to my personal life. So what we're going to talk about today is why you can't afford not to be memorable in sales. Because a lot of what we're seeing out there right now and what I'm seeing is just a ton of cold emails and cold calls that are just like, blah. Like it's just all the same experience for the prospect. And not very many people are doing things to really stick out because sticking out takes a ri- uh, requires you to take a risk. And it might be a risk that your company doesn't want to take either. But what we're going to get into with Jay Bear today, who I'm really excited to talk to, he's a seventh generation entrepreneur. He's author of six best-selling business books. Talk Triggers is definitely a book you have to, to check out. It's really a, a book full of case studies on how companies create memorable experiences with their customers so that those customers will then talk about those experience experiences. So it's essentially a way to create word of mouth, which is something that is very underrated in prospecting. The way that you can create word of mouth is by making a really good impression upon the people that you're prospecting to so that they then talk to other people in their company about the prospecting experience they had with you. And you can do that in a lot of different ways, but we're going to get into those ways today uh, with Jay. So before we get into the interview, one quick thing is I would love uh, if you're enjoying the podcast to get an honest review from you on iTunes. I want to continue getting on great guests like Jay. We do this podcast for free, and one of the ways we can continue building the platform and get more great guests on is if you take a minute or two just to leave an honest review on iTunes. So if you're listening on iTunes, that's pretty easy to do. But if you're not, you can find it by going to blissfulprospecting.com slash iTunes or just typing Blissful Prospecting in iTunes. Quick review, would really appreciate it. And without further ado, let's get into the interview. So I have to ask you uh, to get started here. Where does your love for Plaid come from? It... (laughs) Hey, Jason. Um, <laughs> like, I don't know that it's a love for plaid. I mean, I guess I, I guess it is. I've got like 13 plaid suits. So yeah, that yeah. is that is a lot. That's, that's extra. Um, it's funny too, because I don't have any other plaid, right? So I only have plaid suits. I don't have like plaid shirts or plaid shoes mm-hmm. or plaid underpants. Uh, I just really like the plaid suit. And so what happened was, when I first started going to conferences a lot, right, like 10, 12 years ago, it's like, man, there's all these speakers here and all these attendees and there's a thousand people here or 5,000 people here or whatever. And we're all walking around in the same hallway. And like some people wear like, you know, silly hats or whatever. I'm like, yeah, that's a little, a little too frivolous for my brand. 
but I'm like, look, everybody's wearing clothes. So what if I just, you know, took this up a notch? And so I had a guy who was um, making me suits on occasion because I'm kind of a Frankenstein shape. And so it's sometimes easier to make them <laughs> than to alter them. And, and I'm like, oh, you know, that's a pretty crazy wild pattern. Why don't you make me one of those? He's like, I don't know. Are you sure? That's pretty wild. I'm like, no, I'll give it a shot. And I got all these comments about it, right? So then the next time I made a suit, I made a, a, a crazier one and then a crazier one and then a crazier one. And, and now the guy who makes my suits, like when he gets weird patterns in, he just like sets them aside because he knows I'm the only one that will buy them. But Jason, it's a fine line between having like, like kind of, you know, wild plaid suits that pop on stage in particular and like a caricature, like a, like a Craig Sager, if you remember him, may he rest in peace, the basketball announcer or Don Cherry, the recently disgraced hockey announcer, right? To me, that's a caricature. That's a cartoon. And I don't want to do that. Like, I want to be like, that's a cool suit. That guy's got swag as opposed to that guy's a cartoon character. So you got to thread the needle, baby. Well, yeah, I've seen pictures on your website of you wearing the suits and none of them are ugly. Uh, Thank you. For your credits. So um, I'm trying to be, I'm trying to be different, not goofy, different, not goofy, fine line. Love it. Love it. So I think a good place to start. I mean, there's so many different places we can start uh, with you because doing research on someone like you is fun because everything is unique about almost everything that I look at down to your LinkedIn profile and what's in the about me section to the website and everything. Have you always been like that? You always wanted to stand out and be different. Has that always been a yeah. thing? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, for sure. And I don't know why either. I mean, I was never, I was never taught that. That was never like mm-hmm. a lesson from my dad or whatever, right? I just always felt like you've got a series of choices every day in your life, and you have a series of choices every week and every month and every quarter and every year, and you can choose to do what everybody else does or you can choose to do what they don't do. And I just always gravitated toward the latter. And I, and I still don't really know why. Like, you know, I've got an electric car and I, you know, and I live in a college town and as opposed to New York or where most people who do why my job live in big cities and I don't and I don't want to. And so I just, I've always kind of run um, against the grain like that. And, and it's not like it's, I don't know, man. It's it's not like it's a philosophy or a mission statement or, you know, I'm not like some counterculture hippie, bro. It's not my thing. I just, I just feel like, why would I want to do what everybody else does? Like, that's not interesting or distinct. And so I guess I've always been attracted to, to being distinct at some level. Can you remember a time even as a kid where you were like uncomfortable sticking out like where it kind of made oh your heart God, race yes. a little bit, like before you put on that outfit I for was school? <laughs> uncomfortable. I was uncomfortable sticking out until college. Oh, wow. Because okay. even in high school, I would, I was, you know, like, I'm not going to, you know, go the same route. And so I, uh, I, I wasn't plaid, but I had like, I wore a lot of knit ties in high school and I had like yellow shoes for a while. And I remember being at a party. I think I was a sophomore and um, a bunch of older kids, seniors, they didn't like, you know, standing out. And um, it was a house party. And they picked me up and threw me in a swimming pool, fully clothed. Oh, man, what a bunch of assholes. And they're like, that's what you get, yellow shoe, bro. And I was like, huh, interesting. So yeah, I actually, I actually took my lumps um, in that regard for a long time until I got um, to, you know, a bigger community. I grew up in a relatively small town, which is not probably the best environment for wanting to stand out. Um, and, and once I got to college, there's enough people there and enough different types of people that, uh, sort of find, find your tribe, that kind of thing. And then I, eventually it got to the point where, um, I was lucky in that I, 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 I moved pretty quickly in my career. So I was in charge of stuff at a very young age. And at that point I could give a shit. I'm like, I don't care if you like what I'm doing or not, I'm in charge. Yeah, that's really interesting. I definitely relate with you growing up in a small town. I grew up in a town called Brookings, Oregon. It's 5,000 people. And my, my dad especially really encouraged more humble behavior, like not sticking out, which is the exact opposite of really what you want to do in sales <laughs> or as a yeah, business. Right, right, right. So I, uh, I definitely yeah. relate. And that affected me, honestly, until I went to therapy like a couple of years ago where I had this thing. I, I don't know if it was like self-conscious uh, behavior around almost like shame, I guess, and, and a, uh, just fear of judgment or something. So it's interesting that you, it sounded like you made that, that flip pretty quickly, but it, it definitely came with its, uh, 
bumps and bruises along the way, huh? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And as I said, it wasn't like it wasn't like anybody told me that this is the yeah. way to be. But but I did get you know a lot of lessons from my family. I think I may have told you this at one point, but I'm a seventh generation entrepreneur. Yeah, my son cool. is an my son is an eighth generation entrepreneur. Um, but we never like when I was a kid, it wasn't like my dad sat my brother and I down and said like, you're going to start a business someday. And it was never, and he never had to say it. It was just, that's just like, it was assumed almost. Right. And so it was never really a question of, are you going to do something? It was, you know, when and what and under what circumstances. So, you know, now looking back and my, my brother's passed away and my dad's passed away. And so looking back on it, I'm like, Oh, that was different than other people grew up, right? Where where everybody in your family going back to the, you know, early 1800s was self-employed. Like, oh, that is different. Wow. Like, you know, but when you when you grow up in it, you don't think of it as different at all. It's just, that's kind of how you roll. Do you think that people operate businesses like that too? Especially some of these, because you work with some really big brands. And do some of those companies operate like that too? Where it's like, hey, we've just always kind of done it this way. Why would we want to do it any different at this point? Oh my God, for sure. I mean, that's one of the challenges with with different plays on the sales side. Think about account-based marketing, right? And and mm-hmm. how how right it is intellectually, procedurally, operationally, and tactically for a lot of businesses. But it requires a fundamental re-examination of your of your go-to-market. And even if it makes sense on paper to do that, you can end up with a lot of institutional inertia around actually making that switch. Cause it's like, look, man, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Like, you know, we've been this successful for this long. Like, why would we change how we sell? Uh, and it's like, well, bro, cause like the whole rest of the world has changed too. Right. So, you know, some of the best business leaders out there are those who, uh, Jeff Bezos is one of them who says, look, you know, if we don't put ourselves out of business, somebody else is going to do it for us. Uh, and, and that's why, you know, you, you can't be resting on your laurels, however much you might want to do so. What, what type of, just out of curiosity, what type of resistance do you hear like when you're going through a sales process with this? I mean, I guess it's almost a loaded question because people, I'm assuming, come to you because they want to do this. <laughs> but what kind of resistance do you yeah. encounter when talking to people about this kind of stuff? What do they say? Yeah, and, and so let me break down kind of what we sell. So at Convince Convert, mm-hmm. my consulting firm, we sell high-dollar, long long-standing strategic plans around digital marketing improvement, customer experience improvement, social media improvement, et cetera. And then we sell content marketing execution programs where we'll produce a podcast for you or produce a video series or produce an ebook or run your B2B influencer program, that kind of work. And then obviously on the speaking side, I sell speeches. Um, you're right in that from a, from a quote unquote prospecting standpoint, we don't do a tremendous amount of that. Um, generally, when we engage with a prospective customer, they have some sense of who we are and what we do. The pushback we get is, is that what we sell are ideas. Mm-hmm. We are a strategy company. Right? We are not an agency. We are not going to make your Facebook ads, right? We, we do not do tactics. Um, we, we don't do hands-on keyboard work for the most part. And, and understanding how pain for our ideas gets translated into revenue is sometimes a challenge. And then kind of going back to what we were talking about a second ago, Jason, about inertia, you have to think about it from the client's perspective. They are a vice president of digital marketing or a director of content marketing or a CMO or whatever is a lot of, a lot of who we sell to. And if we come in and say, we're going to charge you a bunch of money to come up with a bunch of ideas and make you better, for them to hire us to do that is a tacit admission that they and their current team are not as good as they could or should be, right? Literally for them to pay me, they essentially have to admit failure at some level. That's hard, right? The psychology around that is hard. Um, So we try to mitigate that with messaging and, and go to market around, look, it's not like we're smarter than you. It's that 
your boss, the CMO or the CEO, will trust us because we don't work there, right? So there's lots of things that happen, especially in big companies, Jason, where there's this reliance on third parties and consultants and experts. It's good for me. Uh, yeah. But it's this idea that nobody smart could possibly work here at this company. Only smart people are consultants, right? So a lot of times what we do is we essentially say what the internal team has been saying for three years, but because we say it, it's believed. And when they say it, it's not believed, which is a, a challenge with a lot of uh, company environments. Dude, there's so many different ways that we could take that. That was really awesome. Um, one thing that you said that I think a lot of people relate to if they're selling anything, because uh, most of the you know, people that listen to this are selling either a software, you know, a SaaS product um, or some sort of service. But a lot of what I hear is, hey, if I'm selling this thing, how do I make sure that I'm not this VP of sales or marketing that I'm reaching out? How do I not alienate this person or think that I'm trying to compete with them? Any any tips? Just Because it sounds like you deal with this a lot yeah. on even just from a prospecting standpoint, really coming from a place of I want to help and generate ideas with you and I want to work with you. I'm not trying to compete with you in any way. Yeah. I think part of it is, is understanding that ultimately how you want to position it is you are a conduit to improving the life of that person. So Mm -hmm. for us, a lot of times there's greater scrutiny now of content marketing, social media, digital marketing expenditures it used to be kind of a fun little thing and as you know, whatever, but now it's a big part of people's budgets. And especially because content marketing requires a lot of labor, um, these departments and companies have hired more and more people, right? So now you've got executives saying, wait a second, we have how many people in the content marketing department? 30? What? You know, and how, why? What are they doing? How do we make money off this? And so a lot of times what we will come in with is, is help our customer who runs that department explain to her boss the role of content in the success of the business and then help them right size and organize their org chart. Like really look at it from the personnel standpoint. What's the value of that? Well, it makes her the hero. Right? The software isn't about software. See, the, the mistake people make when selling, Jason, is thinking that whatever they sell is a solution. That's why I hate the notion of solution selling. Yeah. What you sell isn't a solution. What you sell is a conduit to a solution. Right? The software is just a means to an end, man. Like, look, here's how I explained this the other day on a show. Nobody in the history of the world has ever needed socks. Socks is a solution. Everybody in the history of the world has needed their feet to be warmer. And if you want to be good at sales and prospecting, you got to focus on cold feet, not on socks. It's not about what you sell. It's about the thing that you sell and how that improves the life of the buyer. And so for us, it's, if our customer gets better um, grades, if you will, from the CEO, she gets promoted or takes a job at a different company making more money. That's what we really sell. We sell career path to our clients. We just disguise it as a strategic plan. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I, <laughs> I always talk about, and Seth Godin is who I've heard talk about this, where the, you know, do people buy, they don't buy the drill, they buy the hole. And he's like, well, I don't really think they buy the hole. I really think that what they're looking for is a way to hang up that picture that means a lot to them or, or hang up their flat screen and wall mount their flat screen TV. Is it the same sort of thinking there is that it's like, think beyond the nuts and bolts. I always say move beyond features and benefits. You know, it's not about the features of the benefits. It's not, it's not, it's, it's, here's the exercise that we use and maybe, um, folks tuning in will be able to use this as well. So if you say, all right, we sell, um, we sell software. Uh, think about a company like um, like Wabula, right? So one of our clients, Wabula, is a SaaS company that allows you to validate your forms when people fill them out for email, right? So they can make sure that the emails are not bogus, uh, keeps your database clean, make sure your sales teams have a bunch of like malformatted emails or bogus data, right? It just kind of keeps your database better, better database hygiene. 
All right. So we sell software that uh, makes sure that all the email addresses you collect from customers and prospects are accurate. But the question you ask now is, okay, why is that good? Well, that's good because, you know, the email is accurate enough to waste time on bad data. All right. Well, why is that good? Well, because if we're wasting time on bad data, that means we're not spending as much time interacting with prospects that are actually prospects. Okay, well, why is that good? Well, because if we're not spending as much time as we could on legitimate prospects, right, our actual revenue per lead goes down. Okay, why is that good, right? And you continue to ask that question, why is that good? Over and over and over and over until you get to the core issue, right? Which is, hey, if we don't grow this company by 30% in the next six months because it's venture-backed, we're all fired, right? At the end of the day, there's a, either a big problem or a big opportunity. And what you got to do is tie whatever it is you're selling emotionally and psychologically to that big thing. And is this part of, just to bring this kind of full circle here, because we're really talking about this theme of how to be memorable, especially as a, you know, as a salesperson, does speaking in this language and focusing on these things, is that part of being memorable? I think it certainly can be, right? I mean, there there are there are salespeople who are really good at understanding what's really at play, who understand what the stakes really are. And again, it's not about the software. And they understand business and they understand emotions. And there are salespeople that aren't good at that, right? Or aren't good at that yet. Partially because I am a business owner and have been for a long time and a business strategist and have been for a long time. I prefer to work with the former because I don't need somebody to tell me whether or not this software makes sense for my business. I can figure that out for myself. Mm -hmm. But if somebody understands my business and how the software fits into that, oh, well, let's have that conversation, right? If somebody can explain to me how the software benefits my business in a big picture, meaningful downstream way, you can have that conversation. But if it's like, hey, let me show you how it works and at a sort of a microcosm, what the use case is, nah, it's wasting my time, man. I can do a demo. I don't need a, somebody to do yeah, that. Exactly. And that's <laughs> the, uh, a lot of what we coach around, the, especially with cold emails, or even a cold call, really, for that matter, when you're calling someone, like, don't make the purpose of that to set up a demo. You know, like, no one wants to spend a half hour, especially a busy executive or business owner wants to spend or waste any of their life doing it. It better demo. be a pretty good email or a pretty good phone call if you think you're going to get a yes to a demo um, off the bat. Because my question is, how about dinner and a movie first, right? Number one, like, you know, give me some value. I wrote a book called Utility, which is all about helping, not selling. And the idea that the way you sell something is by giving away everything you know, one bite at a time. That's why this idea of nurture is so important, right? It's like, just give them all the value and eventually they'll sell themselves, man. You don't have to sell them. They will sell themselves. They will actually do a demo request without you. You don't need to push them to do it, but you got to lead with value, right? You got to lead, lead, lead with value. And um, uh, Gary Vaynerchuk and I are right on the same page there. I wrote Utility and about two months later, he came out with Jab, 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 Right Hook. And it's very much the same philosophy. The idea that you just give away everything and eventually it will come back tenfold. But the problem is most people don't have the patience to operate that way. Or in a sales environment, a lot of times sales leadership doesn't have the patience. And so you're screwed, right? They're like, well, how come we didn't book more demos this week? It's like, bro, because people aren't ready for a demo yet. They don't even know who we are. Yeah. Oh, man. Okay. So, okay. So I want to backtrack just a little bit because there, there are some things that you mentioned earlier that I think are a good, you know, sort of segue into this being memorable, you know, piece. Um, you, you mentioned something about being a strategy company. Um, how does that translate into revenue? And the first question I had there was like, if I'm a salesperson, why is it important to be memorable? And maybe you want to talk about talk triggers and what that is because we haven't really talked about that. But let's start with that. Why? what is the ROI of being memorable for a salesperson? And why is it important? I'm working on a survey right now with one of my clients, which is a CRM marketing automation platform. 
and they sell to agencies, ad agencies, digital agencies, et cetera. And so we surveyed uh, a bunch of agencies and we discovered that I think it was 68%, somewhere in that ballpark, it doesn't matter, but in that range of agency leadership. So these are owners, founders, people like me, get multiple inbound touches from software sales vendors every day. Multiple per day. Now, if you're not committed to standing out as an individual and or as an organization amidst what is from the buyer's perspective, a sea of sameness, then you should reconsider your career choices. If you are going at this as you're going to be 10% better or 7% better than the typical SaaS salesperson, good luck. This isn't about better. This is about different. As my friend Sally Hogg said famously has said, different is better than better. Yeah. And, I, and that is exactly the message that I want to bring to you today. You need to do something different than what people like me who buy things from people who listen to this show, you need to do something that I haven't seen or that I don't see multiple times per day. And there's a lot of ways to do that, but you got to have a shtick, right? It's probably not plaid suits. That's my thing. Also, most people are not going to see you face-to-face. It'd be a little weird to be wearing plaid suits, but maybe not. Maybe you only do videos, right? You only do video calls, you only do video emails, and you only do video emails and you're always wearing a gorilla mask. Is that goofy? Yeah, probably. Would people remember that? Yes. The guy who sends me a video email every Wednesday and he's always wearing a a gorilla mask and he always sends me two blog posts that he thinks I should read because it's valid to my company, but he always wears a gorilla mask and he signs his email, Jason the Gorilla Bay. Would I remember that guy (laughs) when it's time to do a demo? Of course I would. But people are friggin' lazy, right? They're like, I don't want to stand out. I don't want to do the work necessary to actually break out of the pack. And guess what? If all you care about is averages, you will never be anything other than an average salesperson. So where do you think is a good place to start for as a salesperson when thinking about how to be unique? I I think it's breaking down the ways that, that you can be unique, right? So Um, In the book, Talk Triggers, that I wrote with Daniel Lemon, which is all about the power of word of mouth and standing out in business, that book is is written for companies, right? Uh, Daniel's actually working on a book right now, which will be Talk Triggers for Salespeople, this exact topic, but it's not ready yet, so I don't want to give away too much of of that premise yet because I don't want to mischaracterize his work. But but what you want to do is think through, okay, for companies, there are five types of talk triggers. Okay. And a talk trigger, just to define it, Jason, is an operational choice that you make that is designed to create conversations or be memorable, right? It's a choice, not random. There are five types of talk triggers. And many of these apply to to sales and, and prospecting, as you will very quickly understand. First is talkable generosity. This is when you give your prospect more than they expected. Second is talkable usefulness. This is when you're more useful or educational than your prospect expected. Third, which is the one I use, talkable speed. You're faster than your prospect expected. Fourth is talkable empathy. You are kinder and more human than your prospect expects. And the last is talkable attitude where you're just like a little bit goofy or off-center or, or you have some sort of slant on the world that stands out. So if you were Jason the Gorilla Bay and you always wore the gorilla mask, that would be an example of talkable attitude. So you can see all of these uh, can apply. You just have to pick one, figure out what your shtick is going to be, and then ride that horse all the time. So as I mentioned, speed is one that we use. It's not just me and my whole company. Convince and convert. We are rooted in speed. It's it's in our DNA. We started the company 12 years ago based on this premise, and it still is. Uh, we respond to calls, emails, etc. from clients pretty much um, 16 hours a day, and and our SLA is 60 minutes, which as a high dollar consulting firm is unheard of. Um, we have a email address that every client gets that goes to everybody on the team simultaneously. It's a distribution list. So if clients have a need. It goes to everybody and they will get responded to usually within 60 seconds. 
and just nobody crazy. does that. It's like nobody does that, right? Yeah. It's, it doesn't. It just doesn't happen. Not for our kind of company, right? We're more we're, we're more like a law firm than anything else, right? And so to have that kind of response rate is is just is not done, right? Um, but so often clients or prospects will will call me or text me like, man, I can't believe how on top of stuff you guys are. It's crazy, right? It's like, yeah, no, that's on purpose. So that's the one we chose. But there's a lot of different ones that you can pick. Now on the speaking side of my business, it's talkable attitude. It's the plaid suit thing. Yeah. Right. So, so the key is to make it an experience, right? So we talked about video emails wearing the gorilla mask. So me wearing plaid suits isn't a talk trigger. Okay. It's, it's, it's on the way to a talk trigger, but it's a bullet point. Jay's a great speaker. He's in the speaker hall of fame. Bullet point also only wears plaid. Interesting, but not really super duper memorable. It's not really a story. So here's how we put a twist on it, Jason. When, when people book me to give a speech, when we used to do those kind of things, <laughs> or at least a live speech, yeah. um, uh, seven days before the event, they get an email from me. Thanks very much. Pumped about your event. Can't wait. Go here to pick out my suit. And it's a website that we built, dressjbear.com. And it has all 13 of my suits and they pick out which one they want me to wear. And it goes on my calendar. So I'm able to pack it and I wear it to the event. That's so cool. So they love it, right? Because now they're part of the door. They're part of the act. They're part of the story. So back, back to our gorilla analogy. If I was Jason the Gorilla Bay, I would send a bunch of emails wearing the gorilla mask with awesome resources for the prospect. And then, and this is critical, I would mail them a gorilla mask because now they're in it with you, right? Or send them bananas or whatever, right? Like yeah. Shakita is one of my clients, actually. We could, we could make that happen. Uh, <laughs> we, we just, uh, now, now it's everybody's in it together, right? That's how you do it. So the, the talk track is really about creating the, or the talk trigger, excuse me, is really about creating that memorable event that people will then talk about. That is the goal, the word of mouth transfer. Absolutely. Yep. Okay. Uh, that is the most because overlooked, here's the thing, especially in B, especially in B two B sales, right? Because the problem is, look, how many buyers are there? You might be talking to one yeah. person. This is why ABM is so interesting. You might be talking to one person, but there's eight or ten people who are contributing to figuring out whether you're the right solution. So, word of mouth inside the prospect's company is so massively overlooked. It's crazy, right? What? Yes, would it be great if this one prospect talked to somebody in a different company so they have a net new lead? Yeah, that'd be great. But more importantly, at least initially is if you're talking to the director of whatever and you can get them to go down the hall when we also used to be in the same office but at least now get on a zoom call with somebody else from home and tell them man i've been working with this guy jason is hilarious their software is dope and he always wears a gorilla mask when he sends me emails right now you've got other people in the company right knowing the story and it makes it so much easier to sell especially in b2b interesting i never really thought that's such an a great point. The word of mouth inside the company, because a lot of people Gotta start think, there, man. Yeah. A lot of people think with prospecting and especially if they're doing a lot of cold outbound, that it's all this one-to-one sort of stuff where I either get this person to say yes to an email or not. And then I move on to the next person. They're not really that thinking about not deciding the by themselves. They're not deciding by themselves in almost any case, unless you're selling something really inexpensive. They're not deciding. There's a bunch of people who've got to sign off on it, either explicitly or implicitly. And so the first thing you got to do is get the that, whoever your contact is, to tell the story to everybody else in the organization. Now, you almost never see that happen, which is why we don't talk about it in business enough, but it definitely happens and it's super important. Yeah. Cool stuff, man. I, I love this. So the... What are some other ways that we can think of how to be memorable? And I'm thinking like if I'm sending a lot of emails or making a lot of calls, I like the idea of the gorilla mask. <laughs> I We See, oftentimes I use, uh, uh, I send, uh, the way I've gotten on a lot of sales podcasts is by sending them cold emails with a video. And then, so that sticks out, just the video itself. But I also put pictures of our uh, puppy, Pepe, in there. And one of them is, you know, hey, maybe if you're lucky, we can find a time where Pepe you know, will be up and it's a picture of him napping and he's, you know, he's a toy pool, right? Super, super cute. And a lot of people comment on that is like, what are some ways that we can think of like the, the gorilla mask thing? How did you think of that? And like, what's a, if there is a process, what, 
what can I be thinking about if I'm like wondering where to even start without being yeah. like you said, where I'm not just using the plaid suit as like, oh, look at me, I'm wearing a plaid suit. Like, right. Um, I just came up with it when we were talking about it. So I don't know um, how I came up with it. I just invented it while we were having this conversation. So there was no great uh, research putting in a gorilla mask. I just riffed on it, but uh, I do this for a living. So that's okay. Um, yeah. But here's the process. All right. So we go into great detail on this in the book. Uh, also, I should say, if you go to talktriggers.com, uh, there's tons of free resources there. So there's infographics, there's a whole research piece, there's videos, there's discussion guides, uh, all kinds of things. So if you want to get a book, great, get one. There's an audio book as well, read by me and my co-author. Uh, but the website has a bunch of free resources. Um, knock yourselves out. In the book, uh, and I won't get into like all the details here because it gets a little granular, but in the book, um, we talk about the six-step process for creating talk triggers. And, and that's what I want to touch on here a little bit because you don't just want to sit in a conference room and riff this. Like that's, I just did, but that's not the way you should do it. If it was that easy, you'd already have one, right? So you want to do two things. First, map your prospect journey, okay? So what are all the touch points you have or could have with a prospect, right? Write that down. Then create a second layer on that. And it actually is cool if you do it as an onion skin, like on an actual map, but your results may vary. You actually want to say, okay, at each step of this process, what do the prospects expect? Because see, Jason, the key to a talk trigger, the key to being memorable about anything is to understand very clearly what people expect and then don't do that. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're essentially creating an expectation map on top of a prospect journey map. And the challenge, and this is how everybody gets messed up on this, it can't be about competency. And we talked about different is better than better. Competency doesn't create conversations. Competency is important. If you're a terrible sales rep or you have terrible company, bad software, I can't help you, right? Being different ain't going to help you. you. You have to have competency. But competency is table stakes, right? Like I've never, I've never, no one's ever said this story. Like nobody tuning in has ever said this. Hey, let me tell you about this experience I just had. It was uh, perfectly adequate, (laughs) right? Nobody ever says that because it's not a story. There is no actual story there, right? So doing what your customers expect you to do is not a story, right? They're not going to tell somebody internally. They're not going to tell somebody externally. So you have to do something different. So for example, One of the big inflection points uh, for a business like mine in the prospect journey is when we send a proposal, right? True for a lot of people probably tuning in as well. At some point, you've, you've met the prospect, you've nurtured them, you've built a relationship, you've scoped it, blah, blah, blah. And now here is what we're gonna charge you. Now in my world, high dollar strategy consulting, what they expect is a written proposal saved as a PDF and emailed. That's what they expect. That's what almost everybody does. And for now, that's what I do also. But I'm working on a new plan. It goes like this. Temporarily on pause, and you'll see why for a second. What if, instead of emailing the proposal, what if instead you printed the proposal out Okay, then you put it in a plastic envelope. And then you went to your local bakery or grocery store and you ordered a sheet cake like you'd have for a party. And then you decorated the top of the sheet cake with the logo of the prospect's company. And you had the bakery or the grocery store take their proposal in the plastic envelope and put it underneath the cake and then delivered the cake to the prospect's home or office so that, Jason, in order to access your proposal, they had to eat an entire cake. (laughs) Would they tell that story to their colleagues in the organization and their peers and other companies? Hell yes. What would that cost? I priced it out. It's like 50 bucks, yeah. which is like 0.001% of one project for us. Yeah. I was going to say, if you got a five, six or, you know, seven figure project, it's, it's nothing. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Right. So it's, it's just, look, you touched on it. It was so, so smart to start this way. 
a lot of this is just giving yourself permission to do something different. And a lot of times we don't, especially in B2B, because B2B as an industry has taken a vow of boredom. Everybody's like, look, man, we're going to be as boring as possible and best practices. And we don't want to stand out. And it just just infuriates me uh, because actually talk triggers and standing out works better in B2B than it does in B2C because nobody in B2B does it. And when they do, it's a huge success. Do you know, um, do you know Uber Conference? Do you know that company? Yep. So it's one of the case studies in the book. So Uber Conference, free voice calls um, over the internet. There's a, a dozen companies now that do the exact same thing. And I don't mean similar. I mean the exact same thing. They have 0%, minus 50% opportunity to differentiate on the product side. It's already free, so you can't win on price, right? It's already calls over the internet, which everybody else does, so you can't differentiate on features. So they have talkable attitude. Worst thing about a call on the internet, waiting on hold. Their on hold music is hilarious. Custom That's the song one thing I remember in- about it. Exactly. And Custom I told song my wife written immediately, by their CEO. I was like, you got to listen See? to this song. It's so funny. Yeah. Exactly, right? You got to read the case study in the book. It was written written and performed by their CEO. Oh, I didn't know that. And it's all about how funny it is, you know, how weird it is to wait on hold. And then you, you hang up and then the call starts and it's great. And if you go to Twitter or G2 Crowd or LinkedIn or anything else and just search for Uber Conference Plus on hold, you will see hundreds of people saying, man, the service is fine, but... I'm only here for the on hold music, right? That is an incredible talk trigger, right? And they're like, look, we're just going to give ourselves permission to do something different. And it's a massive success. And you can do it as a company and you should, and you can absolutely do it as an individual rep and you should. Do you think that there's going to be a trend of B2B borrowing, or I guess the buying experience, excuse me, for B2B more being in line with the B2C buying experience, like more fun? less stuffy, that kind of thing. You think that's going to be a trend at all? It's a really, um, I want to say yes, but I think the reason is different than where you're headed. I think the answer is yes, but I don't think it's an influence from B to C. Mm -hmm. I think it's actually the pandemic. And, And when everybody's working from home and everybody's puppy Pepe is in the video shot and everybody may or may not be wearing pants, it's a little harder to take yourself super seriously, right? Like we work with some very, very large billions of billions and billions and billions of dollars of enterprise B2B companies. And every, you know, you you can't take everybody that seriously, right? When everybody's at home. And, And so I sort of feel like the whole spirit of all of this is going to remain a little more casual even post-pandemic, right? And I read an interesting article the other day um, about the makeup and fashion industry. My son's actually in fashion design university right now, so it was really applicable. And it was like, look, we've all gotten used to like maybe not doing our hair and maybe not wearing makeup and certainly not wearing fancy shoes. Are we going to go back instantly when things kind of reopen? I'm like, yep, I need to go get a bunch of shoes again. Or are we just going to be like, yeah, it was fine. I'm just wearing socks and sweatpants. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens in that regard, right? Whether we, whether we sort of go back to, um, to, to focusing on style and sort of giving off those kind of social cues and financial cues. I don't know. We'll, we'll see. The glass has been shattered, right? You've, you've already seen your CEO or whoever in, in a t-shirt. So it's <laughs> right. <laughs> no, man, you nailed it, right? It's, I can't take you seriously anymore, bro. I saw the nachos. Yeah. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Is there anything that, because I'm sure you're on the receiving end of a lot of cold outreach, I would assume mostly emails and probably LinkedIn messages, because it doesn't seem like a lot of people are picking up the phone right now. Is there anything that you would like to see being on the receiving end of that experience or would like to stop seeing being on the receiving end of that experience? Yeah. I mean, certainly it's, it's two things. One, lead with value, right? Give me something don't take from me, right? You're taking from me time and attention. If you can give me something and when somebody says, hey, here is a blog post, a report, research, something that you're actually going to appreciate, that gets my attention. And then the other thing is, man, like 
and I'm obviously hypersensitive to it because we do this kind of work, right? We're a marketing firm. Yeah. But there's so many totally half-assed customization and automation programs out there, right? Where it's just such a poor use of of custom fields and mail merge and, you know, like it, it just, you know, I've been looking at your website and saw blank fill in whatever. And it's like so obviously not true. It's just so ham fisted and, and like bad. Like, look, man, if you're going to do an automated sequence that, that purports to be customized, spend a little more time to make it actually feel like you could trick me into thinking that you actually did something like I'll give you an example. I get tons. I, I have two big podcasts that I host and so I probably get, I don't know, four to six to seven um, inbound. Hey, this person wants to be in your podcast emails a day from PR people. A lot of PR people. Yeah. yeah. Some direct ballot PR people. And, and it's like, you know, my show is called social pros. It's all about uh, medium and big company, social media managers. That's the show. This guy started America's largest chain of tire retailers, and we think he'd be a great fit for social pros. I'm like, what makes you think that this show that's about social media managers wants to have a guy on who started a tire company? Like, bravo on the tires. Interesting story. But that's not what this show is, right? So, you know, if you're going to do that kind of smash and grab um, program, like, like, you are never going to get an email return from me ever. Like, in fact, in those cases, what I do is I mark as spam and report. I'm like, boop, like out. Um, because if you're that lazy or that misguided that you can't even, you know, pull your database together appropriately, then you're not going to get my money. It's really interesting because you mentioned table stakes earlier. And you'd think from a prospecting standpoint that doing some basic research would be table stakes at this point. But so few people do it. I don't... Anything that requires real effort is never table stakes. That's one of my great business lessons. Oh, that's a great line. I just came up with that. But I think it's... Uh, the, way, the way I phrase it, I never said it that way before, but, but I, I've been thinking about it a long time. Like, people are not... The people, people are lazy. Like, they're looking for shortcuts. And it's one of the problems right now, I think, in sales is that the software has come so far, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, look, I'm old. Like, I remember the time when, you know, prospecting was literally a phone book. I mean, I, that's not just like some movie. Like, here's the book. Yeah. I've been down that road. Um, and and so, you know, we have so many opportunities now with software packages to learn more about the prospects and Sales Navigator and Zoom Info and, you know, marketing automation and nurture sequences and all the stuff, right? And automatic dialers. And man, it's crazy. None of that used to exist. But But that doesn't absolve you of your responsibility to actually put some work into it, man. Like put some effort into it. Uh, it just, it's almost gotten too easy in some cases and, and um, it kind of bums me out. Yeah. And it's like removing the thinking. It makes, it makes for, it's like having parents that did everything for you growing up and you never had to do any critical thinking. It just removes yeah. the critical thinking from the process and you make for up for it in volume. And the talk triggers could work in the opposite way where people have bad things to say about your company and that spreads like wildfire. So true. <laughs> right? um, so I was going to ask you about a prospecting play, but I think this might be a better way to phrase that question. Not that you have to do uh, mm-hmm. a lot of this or maybe any of this type of prospecting, but if you wanted to get the attention of a company that, hey, they're not reaching out to me and I need to get on their radar and you wanted to get their attention, what would Jay Bear do? I'm doing it right now. So uh, one of our one of our verticals is higher ed colleges and universities. Mm-hmm. We have a number of those we work in now. We want to do more. So we did um, we put together a report on we ranked the social media of the top fifty U.S. colleges. Did a report on that. Found all the marketing directors from the colleges. Sent that report out to them uh, via direct email, Sales Navigator, etc then follow that up with another report, then a webinar on social media best practices. We had like 400 universities tune into. And right now we're actually doing a national survey of 17 year old kids, high school seniors on what the pandemic has changed about how they pick colleges. So I'm going to invest probably $15,000 in that research and then give it away to prospects. That's how we do it. Right. So, so, for us to sell our goal, and I think this is everybody's responsibility, frankly, um, 
is to educate and inform prospects so much that some percentage of them simply have to say yes. That's our play. And then inevitably having the conversation is going to be, I mean, dude, how receptive is someone going to be to having a conversation with you when you've at done that point, it's only about, it's just price at that point. It's like, okay, it's yeah. just, it's just, it's just price and scope. I mean, there's, there's no issues about validity or who you are. It's just, okay, when do you want it? And exactly what do you want? Um, and this is why Jason, and I do a lot of speaking and writing about this topic. This is why it's so critical for sales and marketing to work closer together than ever. Because in many cases, the, the, the play for sales has to come from marketing at some level, right? Marketing has got to give sales the resources and the, and the guides and the content and the assets in order to actually inform and educate and entertain prospects um, until that prospect is ready. And, and, you know, marketers were like, well, sales will figure it out. They'll just continue to send emails that say checking in, um, bro, that's not going to work, man. Yeah. And then the misalignment between the information that the salespeople share, you know, from marketing is another really big thing. Dude, we could record a whole podcast on that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, it's been really cool though, man. Uh, what's, what's the best place to check you out? I'm definitely going to, by the way, link in the show notes uh, to talk triggers. You got to pick Thanks. up that book. Um, the whole process is just the simple exercise of going through your prospects journey from start to finish that right there is I think going to be a big eye opener for a lot of people, but I'll link to that. Um, what else do you want people to go check out? Yeah. Talktriggers.com, uh, is, uh, is place to go for the book. Um, convince and convert.com is our main site. Uh, we have 3,500 articles, um, ungated for free for marketers, business owners, customer experience professionals, um, some of it may be valid for professional sales folks, but definitely for your marketing uh, cohorts. Uh, that is a great place to go. And, and my site, my personal site for speaking and wearing a plaid uh, is uh, jbear.com. That was a really fun interview. My favorite line that he shared in that interview was competency doesn't create conversations. Competency is table stakes. When you're prospecting, don't think about I need to show this prospect how competent I am and how great our solution is. That's table stakes. That's, that's a given. You need to do something a little bit extra to stick out. So hopefully you got some really good things from this podcast because sending a video with a great message, that is a talk trigger, right? Using your puppy when you're prospecting, a guitar, wearing a certain type of clothing, like those are all talk triggers. So hope you got a ton out of this before you take off. Again, if I could get a quick review on iTunes, it would really help to, to grow this show. Make sure we get as many people like you here consuming the information so we can continue getting on awesome guests. So if you could, it would do uh, really mean a lot to me if you could leave a quick review on iTunes. Search for the podcast on iTunes. It's pretty straightforward in terms of how to leave a review. And appreciate you tuning in as usual. And I will talk to you soon.